0: Welcome to Insight, live at noon with a rebroadcast at 7 p.m. California is the first state in the country that requires public universities to provide abortion pills. But not all campuses are making that information available to students. Ahead on Insight, a new investigation uncovers what the consequences could be for students. Also, California's last resort to provide homeowners with fire insurance policies has been gaining popularity. And with popularity comes growing pains. We'll learn about the challenges with the fair plan. Finally, Hidden Brain is coming out with its newest series just in time for an election year. Host Shankar Virantham walks us through the psychology of forming our political beliefs and why we should be engaging with each other more, not less. I'm Vicky Gonzalez. That's all coming up today on Insight. First, here's the news. From CAP Radio in Sacramento, this is Insight. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. California leaders often tout the state for being first on bellwether, even controversial issues. And in recent years, especially following the overturning of Roe versus Wade, the state has taken a leading role in reproductive care. A year ago, California expanded abortion access on campus, becoming the first state in the country to require that its public universities, all 33 of them, provide them abortion pills to students but an investigation found there's a concerning disconnect and that basic information on where or how students can get this medication is lacking or even non-existent that investigation is from the public media station laist and senior health reporter jackie fortier explains the consequences and what they have been to students good afternoon jackie Good afternoon. This investigation is by you as well as your colleague, Adolfo Guzman Lopez, who also authored this article. What inspired the both of you to launch this investigation?
1: Well, Adolfo had heard uh, through his higher education reporting, just kind of some rumors that uh, some of the universities weren't doing a very good job of letting students know that medication abortion was available on campus. And uh, he let me know. And I said, yeah, we should we should definitely look into it. And then we started poking around. And I was pretty surprised at uh, the lack of information online, on social media, really in in a lot of these campuses, in in any form, letting students know that it was available. Mm. And the abortion
0: pill is more of an informal way to describe a medication abortions. What Mm -hmm. are medication abortions?
1: Yeah. So medication abortion, um, as you said, it's known as the abortion pill. It's the most common form of abortion in the U.S. It uses a combination of two federally approved drugs to end a pregnancy. It does not require a surgical procedure. Both of them are taken orally. The first pill is mifepristone, uh, which blocks a hormone known as progesterone that the body needs uh, for pregnancy to continue. The second drug, which is taken a day later, is misoprostol. It causes uh, the cramping and bleeding and empties the uterus. Uh, medication abortion is highly effective. Uh, and in 2021, it was used in more than half of abortions in the U.S. Uh, the FDA has found that, you know, when taken as directed, it's very safe and it terminates pregnancies in over 99 percent of the time. Um, it is only used in California up until about the 11th week. So it's only in those first 11 weeks that it's available to patients.
0: So the, uh, within the first trimester?
1: Mm hmm. Yes.
0: You know, this also comes at a time when, especially leading up to the overturning of Roe v.ersus Wade, California really took a big step to say that they were going to be, you know, a sanctuary for people um, across the country who wanted to seek reproductive care, reproductive health, which includes the right to an abortion. Where does Senate Bill 24, which was the piece of legislation that this was named, which obviously became a state law, you know, mm-hmm. when, how, how did this come about?
1: Yeah, I mean, interestingly, this law was passed when there was still a federal constitutional right to an abortion. But as you said, that was overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court in 2022. But this law was passed in 2019. Um, The Dobbs decision in 2022 made abortion access a state-by-state issue. And since then, uh, you know, roughly a dozen states have basically banned abortions. In response, you know, California voters approved an amendment to the state constitution in 2022 protecting California's right to both abortion and Contraception. So that means, you know, people in California have pretty broad legal protection to get an abortion in the state. But You know, keep in mind, any federal change could overrule our state constitution. So if Congress passed a law restricting abortion nationwide, for example, it would still apply to California. But in regards to SB 24 passing, you know, I talked to former state Senator uh, Connie Leva. She's the one who authored uh, the bill. And she said that it was really about keeping people uh, in higher education uh, so that more women would graduate. We know from Education Department data that uh, women who have children while in college, don't graduate as at high of a rate compared to people who do not. Uh, young men tend to still graduate, even if they have a child while they're uh, in college. So her focus was really on getting, uh, you know, access to abortion available for students, so that uh, people could continue their education if they so choose.
0: When this became a state law, did public universities and colleges did they actually really receive some funding to to make this possible?
1: Yeah. This is one of the few times, right, when uh, funding isn't an issue. Um, California Public Universities uh, got about $200,000 in private money to implement the law uh, about a year ago, and that helps to pay for the medication itself, other associated costs. It can also be spent on Outreach. And we found very few campuses are really letting students know that they have access to these medications. It can also be spent on uh, training and on uh, security upgrades. Um, some universities have spent quite a bit of the money. Others haven't spent a dime. Wow. And well, you and Adolfo, you obviously, you know, anecdotally, you know,
0: had something to go off to spark this investigation. Mm-hmm. When you actually looked at the data, what did you
1: uncover? Yeah, well, we found that uh, at the time, it's actually changed a little bit since uh, this was published, but we found that uh, when, when we looked at all of the 33 university clinic websites, um, 12 of them didn't have any information on where or how students could get a medication abortion, or even that they offered it on campus. Um, I looked through a lot of the campuses, uh, you know, Instagram feeds, anything related to health services. Now, there are 33 campuses, so it was a lot of searching. A lot of them would promote their health center, but they wouldn't say anything specific about medication abortion. So uh, I called the schools that didn't have any information on their website and uh, I got interesting responses, and I wasn't pretending to be a student. I just asked if they offered medication abortion. And uh, some of them were very helpful and said yes that they did. Others were, you could tell, pretty shocked that I was even asking. And many of the people who answered the phone didn't know and had to go find out, and they also weren't sure how much it would cost. So it was a really uh you know, disparate response when I tried to get answers um, just by calling. But since our uh, investigation, Cal State San Bernardino has added medication abortion to its website after I interviewed their health clinic director. And then this week, Cal State Long Beach also added it to their website and a little bit of information. And then I actually found this morning that Sacramento State had added it to their website. And they must have added it in the last few days because I looked just a few days Go, uh, knowing that we would be talking.
0: Yeah. And, and I do know our healthcare reporter, Kate Wolf, had reached out to Sacramento State as well, you know, following your investigation for LAist. So what I'm learning from you, it's not just students who are unaware, but even in some cases, staff within these health centers. I mean, passing a bill and making it a law is one thing. I mean, I go back to college. I didn't know when, st- when new laws from one year to the mm-hmm. next. I mean, outreach is pretty important were you surprised that that there was not as much outreach you know especially given that each campus did get funding for this
1: yeah absolutely i was very surprised i'm still surprised that there's such a lack of outreach and you know california is duly very proud of its higher education system um you know there's 33 campus clinics and that's fantastic but they they have very different um Priorities you can tell by looking at their uh, materials. some some of them really stress mental health. others really stress, you know, stis. All of that's important, but it is also important for students to know what is available at their campus clinic. And um, I think that when I spoke with former state senator Connie Leva, you know, she mentioned that it was really difficult to get Cal State and University of California uh, administrators on board with it. They were afraid of offering medication abortion. They were afraid of having any uh, potential complications. They were afraid of protesters on campus. But again, each campus has access to $200,000 in private money, and part of that can pay for outreach. So, you know, the the lack of movement on this is frankly kind of astounding.
0: Yeah. I mean, in looking at both of those Cal States as well as UC campuses, I mean, it seems like now from what I'm learning from you is that the law was that public universities provide these pills but it didn't actually require the campuses the schools
1: to actually tell students about it absolutely and when i asked senator former state senator connie leva about that who wrote the bill she was she was she said that she was disappointed in how it had been implemented but she said it didn't really occur to them that they needed to add that. They thought, well, if it passed, they were really focused on getting it passed. And uh, she thought that universities would kind of let students know that they were fairly transparent about what services they offer at their clinics.
0: And we do have a soundbite from State Senator Connie Leva former state senator. Let's take a listen to what she told you.
1: I don't know that we ever uh, talked about including something, advertising basically, that you could get a medicated abortion on campus. So it definitely wasn't ever taken out of the bill. You know, I would love to see someone who's still in the legislature take that up and make it a requirement that the schools have to provide the information
2: so that the students know
0: you know, writing policy is difficult, and often there are unintended consequences. I mean, it could a possibility be that there was just oversight when when writing this legislation, not thinking about it.
1: Yeah, and that's exactly what Leva said that there were unintended consequences, and and uh, she was really happy that it did pass. You know, medication abortion is being offered on all thirty three of these campuses, um, but it seems like it was just kind of a, a gap that has been left. And in a lot of them, again, they, they still aren't letting students know. Another thing, too, that I want to bring up is that staff also doesn't know. So often, you know, students may not check the clinic website, sure, but they're not getting emails. They're not seeing Instagram posts. And, and, and students, you know, go through different campuses. They graduate. They're only there for a few years. Staff and faculty, though, who these students might go to if they're um you know, looking for information. Uh, if they're feeling vulnerable, they're they are also unaware. They haven't been told. I talked to many professors at different universities. Most of them didn't want to go on the record because they were afraid of any retribution from the school. They were extremely frustrated. They didn't know that the medication abortion was available. They had students who came to them asking where they should go, what they should do in these situations. And I had multiple professors tell me I never thought to send them to the health clinic. I didn't know they offered that. This ultimately
0: trickles down to students. I mean, there's over 400,000 women that attend the state's public universities between the CSU Mm -hmm. system and the UC system. I mean, do you have an idea of how many medication abortions have been provided on on both of these campuses, UC and Cal State's?
1: Yeah, there is a... Uh, report that has to be done um, based on SB 24, which is the the law. So we know that from the latest report, there were 365 medication abortions provided by the UC and CSU campus clinics um, within the first six months after the law went into effect. That also also incorporates technically; it's a fiscal year, so it also some of the schools offered it a little bit beforehand. But so 365 medication abortions. Across 33 campuses. Over the course of a year, yes. And there was a peer-reviewed study that was published in 2019 uh, in a journal of adolescent health that found that up to 519 women at public universities in California seek a medication abortion every month. So we're seeing a huge gap between what... uh, students are likely seeking and what is being provided on campuses.
0: And I know that you mentioned, you know, once your investigation published, you know, there have been additional public universities that have added some kind of language about offering medication abortions. Sac State is one of them. UC Davis also said um, ahead of that, that they provide information about medication abortions can be found on the student health and counseling website. Are there Mm -hmm. other public campuses that are an outlier in a good way when it comes to letting students know in terms of outreach that this is available to them?
1: Uh, UCLA has a pretty good website, but they also have a very dedicated group of students on campus that have tried really hard to let other students know that it's available. Um I have heard that Humboldt is uh, taking into consideration students' uh, voices, uh, Cal Poly Humboldt, a little bit more. Um, I think UC Davis does do a good job. Uh, They have a lot of information on their website. They don't just list medication abortion as a service. They also um, define what it is. They outline the steps and they say how students can get access. I mean, Sacramento State literally just added medication, abortion, it's two words on their website. So it's I mean, yeah, they have a little bit more information, but it's not fantastic.
0: I mean, and just having that information, I mean, is that ease can be easily found?
1: And that's like in quotation marks. I mean, is that sufficient? I mean, there's a no, I don't think so. There's a lot of uh, other public universities and, and there's a lot of other uh, websites that they could even just link to. I mean. The uh, California has its own um, uh, fact sheet about abortion and it defines the different types of abortion. I'm not real sure why these universities don't use any of that information or link to it at all, or even to the California Department of Public Health website if they don't want to go through and write it themselves. I mean, many of them even have their own medical schools and they don't link to anything there. It, so I, I think that I'm surprised that they don't even define what it is for students.
0: You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio, and if you're just joining us, we're talking with LAS senior health reporter Jackie Fortier about a new investigation into the lack of information California's public universities and colleges are providing to students about medication abortions. When you actually spoke with students who had a difficult time getting access to a medication abortion and didn't even know that their campuses had them, what workarounds did they turn to?
1: Boy, uh, I mean, it, 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 unfortunately, after being a health reporter for years and years, it's uh, a similar story every time people devote time energy, money, to trying to get the care they needed. Um, I spoke with Deanna Gomez. She was a student at Cal State San Bernardino last fall. She found out uh, that she was pregnant. She went to a couple different professors who I also talked to. None of them were knew that medication abortion was available uh, on campus. She ended up spending hundreds of dollars to get the care that she needed. Uh, she took over a month off of classes because uh, she had to end up getting follow-up care which jeopardized her uh, December graduation date she almost failed a class luckily she didn't and she graduated but she was exactly the type of student that this law was supposed to help she's a first generation uh you know college graduate in her family and uh, if she had been able you know to get it on campus it would have saved her time money and you know it would have helped her her, her GPA it wouldn't have had all, she wouldn't have had all that stress of maybe not graduating Let's take a listen to what she told you If I had known that I would have taken advantage of it I think emotionally it would have taken a lot of stress off of me because I would have been on campus. I spent a lot of time driving around after work switching schedules, putting my homework on the back burner.
0: I mean, and this is just one example, Jackie. I mean, you you mentioned that women who have a child while attending college, I mean, statistically are less likely to graduate than those who don't. And just and Deanna chronicles this personally in a very intimate way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and I mean, she was also I, I mean, I worked while I was in college, but man, she works up to 60 hours a week at two jobs while taking a full class load. I mean, she's really trying to do her best uh, to get through college. And again, luckily, she did graduate. But it, this this would have been so much easier on her if she had just known that it was available a few hundred yards away on campus. And when I told her that it was available she was livid, to put it mildly. She was so upset, and that's one of the reasons why she was talking so fast in that clip. She was very upset to know that she could have um, uh, had a much easier time to get the care that she wanted. Mm.
0: I'm curious, because when you talk to some people, even um, if they didn't want to disclose their name because they didn't want retribution from the university, I mean, it's one thing to pass a law from lawmakers. It's another thing if people hire up at each campus, they actually are in favor of making abortion and abortion materials more accessible. Do you think that could have been one reason that that some students at some campuses weren't informed and the outreach and information is kind of staggered from, from one public university to the next?
1: I think that speaking to people, I think a lot of folks at the university administrative levels are afraid of protesters on campus, which is interesting because I haven't been able to find any examples of protesters on campus, anti-abortion protesters, now that uh, SB24 is the law. There's also time, place, and manner restrictions on protesters on college campuses. You can't, you know, protest and follow someone into a clinic or into class or around the dorm rooms. So uh, that means that these students then who have to go and get care oftentimes have to go through protesters at, you know, Planned Parenthoods, for example. So You know, they have to put up with protesters, but it's not happening on the campuses because, again, very few people know that they even offer abortion pills to students who want them. Hmm.
0: Jackie, thank you for the investigation and your reporting. Thank you for having me. Jackie Fortier is a senior health reporter at LAS discussing their new investigation into California universities, which are required to offer students abortion pills. Their investigation found a lot of these campuses do not mention it. Up next, California's last resort to provide homeowners with fire insurance policies has been gaining popularity. And with popularity comes growing pains. We'll learn about the challenges with the fair plan. You're listening to Insight on your NPR station, Cap Radio. I'm Vicki Gonzalez.
2: Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Schloem. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts.
0: You're listening to Insight here on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicky Gonzalez. Within the past decade, it has become increasingly difficult to secure fire insurance if your home is in a wildfire-prone area. And if you lock it down, finding an affordable insurance premium has been harder to come by. California put in place a last resort for homeowners. It's called the Fair Plan, and it provides fire insurance policies when property owners can't find them elsewhere. And it has been growing in popularity in recent years. To the point Where there are now complaints about poor service, rising costs, and threats of getting kicked off. Levy Sumagaisai is an economy reporter at Cal Matters. That's a nonprofit newsroom which partners with public media stations across the state. Levy has been getting a better understanding from homeowners, insurance brokers, the state insurance department, as well as the Fair Plan itself, and joins us with more about what's behind these growing pains. Good afternoon, Levy. Hi, Vicki. Nice to be here. So, the Fair Plan isn't necessarily common knowledge. Homeowners, property owners, often don't learn about it until they're in a desperate situation.
3: How did the Fair Plan come about? Sure. So, uh, in the in the 1960s, it was um, insurers were refusing to insure some homeowners who were in certain areas or renters in certain areas, and so. Um, you know the the fair plan actually did come about because um you know there were some folks who were um uninsurable in certain areas and so the fair plan um is uh, a state mandated um plan that um pools a bunch of insurers And um, they have to then insure folks who cannot get fire insurance elsewhere. Okay, so this goes back like
2: six
0: decades. I mean, is it just fire insurance or other types of insurance as well?
3: Well, what's happening now is um, there are people who don't Necessarily need fire insurance. Who are having to go into the fair plan because the California insurance market has um, all these issues. Um, a bunch of major insurers have pulled out of California or have stopped writing uh, new plans in California. And so the fair plan does cover um, fire insurance and 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 others um, other insurance policies if homeowners need them.
0: So when it comes to like how it actually works, if you're a homeowner and you can't find fire insurance or maybe it's just like really, really expensive, you go to the fair plan and then you're guaranteed a plan?
3: Yes, they well they have to offer you a, a plan. Yes, um, however, the the guarantee the that word guarantee is sort of tricky because um, the plans are so expensive. Um, they can get so expensive that um, a lot of folks that I've interviewed or read about or heard from have said they can't afford them. And in fact, some people are going without fire insurance because. Um, The costs have become so prohibitive.
0: What I learned from your reporting is that the fair plan, it's not a state agency. It's not a state department. It's an association created through a statute. I mean, so is that basically a law? And if so, where is the oversight for this association,
3: which is a pool
0: of insurers?
3: Right. Um, That's a really good question. So, yes, the fair plan is its own association made up of a pool of insurers. Um, It is state mandated. Um, The California Department of Insurance does have some oversight over the fair plan. In fact, as um, California residents have complained about the fair plan, uh, possibly not uh, renewing their policies, et cetera, Um, They've complained to the Department of Insurance. And so the Department of Insurance and the fair plan came to some sort of um, settlement last year, late last year, um, where there are stipulations. The fair plan um, has agreed to uh, allow homeowners to address issues with their homes before they are their policies are canceled. Um, They have, uh, you know, they're supposed to allow uh, to sort of uh, institute a surcharge uh, for homeowners who are still trying to fix their issues. And then once they fix the issues that, um, you know, were deemed risky with their homes, then that surcharge is supposed to be lifted. Hmm. Um, So, yeah, so the so this Department of Insurance does have some oversight over the fair plan. Um, they also still approve, they must approve the uh, the rate increases that the fair plan asks for. Um, and so there is some sort of oversight there. It is not complete. The fair plan is its own entity. It is a private entity.
0: I mean, and the reason why you're reporting on this is because, you know, people that are turning to the fair plan, it has been growing in popularity in recent years. I mean, I remember several years ago, like five to seven years ago, I reported on homeowners in the foothills at risk of not having fire insurance. I've also been to wildfire hearings following the 2017 wildfires in Napa and Sonoma, more broadly wine country, where homeowners testified to learning they were underinsured in the aftermath and then I'm learning from you the fair plan goes back you know more almost 6 decades. So this goes back a long time but in the last 5 or 7 years, I mean how much has the fair plan grown? How many people are using it?
3: Sure. Yeah. Um so I I talked with a fair plan folks in early January and they told me that um in 2018 The fair plan had about one hundred and twenty six thousand active policies, and today it is more than three hundred and fifty thousand.
0: Okay, so that's like nearly a threefold increase. I mean, is the fair plan equipped to handle that type of increase in roughly five years?
3: Well, so so that's, what, I mean, that's exactly why I decided to write about this, right? Um, I had heard from so many folks um, who were complaining about the FAIR plan. And so when I, you know, when I wrote my story, I, what I found is that the FAIR plan is going through some major growing pains. Um, they are... You know, they're trying. They say they're trying. But according to the complaints that um, readers and readers and others have contacted me with, um, they are not handling the growth very well. Um, There are customer service issues. Um, The fair plan, uh, on purpose, um, does not provide an email address for people to contact them. Um, You know, customers... uh, home insurance uh, customers are encouraged to contact their brokers instead. And so then I've also talked with insurance brokers who are growing increasingly frustrated with the fair plan. Um, when brokers try to handle uh, the problems that their clients are having, when they try to handle that on their behalf, um, they the brokers say they're dealing with hours long delays on the phone, like they're on the phone for hours and hours waiting to talk with someone. And then they talk with someone. And uh, sometimes the problem still isn't taken care of. Um, so, you know, the the fair plan says it's uh, incoming phone calls uh, nearly doubled over the last half of last year um, to more than 50,000 phone calls a month. Um, the fair plan has hired more staff including temporary staff to try to handle the onslaught um basically of you know because they are seeing so much demand um so that's that's one issue um you asked whether you know what that's going to look like in five years if this continues um the insurers the insurance industry is saying that um you know the bigger the fair plan uh, grows, uh, the harder it is going to be. They're worried about being solvent if there is a major disaster, like a big fire. Um, If they have to pay, um, you know, a lot of claims, um, they are saying that the fair plan has some solvency issues. I mean, that's a lot. I mean,
0: ultimately, this trickles down to property owners uh, and also, you know, the insurance brokers who are the the middle people in this. Right. Uh, when right. you, I mean, you shared some experiences with insurance brokers. When you talk to property owners who are just going through it right now, what did you learn about their experiences?
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, So they are worried. They're worried about their futures. Some of them are going without fire insurance if they no longer have mortgages. Um, You know, they're just sort of taking the risk of not having fire insurance because they can't afford it. A lot of the people I spoke with are retired or nearly retired and are on fixed incomes. Um, There is actually one person that I didn't include in my story. Um, He wanted to remain anonymous because he's just going through a hard time um, he's in the Auburn area. Uh, he told me that last year his fair plan premium went from uh, $4,600 to more than $9,000. And he just said he can't afford that. He's um, He and his wife are now looking to move out of state. He's extremely angry. He says his wife is really depressed. They would be leaving behind all uh, I I believe they have at least four kids in the Bay area and elsewhere in California um, and their grandkids. So, you know, he, he talked about really, I believe he told me he just felt like this was ruining his retirement. um, And that he just felt hopeless. He and his wife felt hopeless about it. Um, And, you know, that's just one story. Uh, After I published this story, um, we, Cal Matters. we've received many, many other stories sort of like it. And it's, it, it, it's sad. Um, and, you know, it, I, I think it might change um, who's going to be able to afford to live in some of these areas uh, could really, could really change the population, the makeup. Um, and, you know, whether some of these folks can even sell their properties, mm. too, uh, because, once they sell their properties, that buyer is going to need to find fire insurance. Right.
0: Right. I mean, I'm just going back to that homeowner in Auburn where it increased from 4600 to more than $9,000. That's, that's insane. Why is that allowed to happen if there is some oversight from the Department of
3: Insurance? Shouldn't there be a cap on increases? Right. I mean, you, you would think, but Again, so the, the Department of Insurance is approving these rate increases. Um, and, you know, what I can tell you is that the insurance industry um, has said that the risks in California are too great, that costs to replace um, homes and, you know, to cost to pl- pay claims have gone up. Um yeah, I mean, again, when when you see these increases, they have gone through mm. the Department of Insurance. And you joined
0: us last month. I mean, it's not just about fire insurance. When you joined us last month, it was about auto insurance and it becoming more difficult in California. Um, even going back, I mean, this summer, you know, two big insurers, State Farm and Allstate, said they were backing out of California for new property policies, you know, due to disasters and other construction costs. So, What is the Department of Insurance's role in all of this? I mean, are they how are they handling these complaints?
3: Right. So, you know, one of the things when I contacted, um, well, I I contact the Department of Insurance a lot, especially lately. Right. But um, one of the things that they told me when I contacted them about the fair plan issues is that, um, you know, they did point to that settlement that they reached with the fair plan late last year saying, you know, they are trying um, to help deal with this. They tell me to let consumers know that if they continue to have issues, if they, um, you know, see non-renewals or cancellations that they think are unfair, that they should contact the department of insurance. Um, And, you know, the department of insurance uh, is dealing with, increased insurance costs and complaints um and issues on all fronts i think you know it's it's not just like you said it's not just auto it's fire insurance it's also home insurance right like others um in recent days have written about how um just plain home insurance has also been uh, affected by the California insurance market. Hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, the California Department of Insurance, uh, you know, uh, no matter what you think about them, they're definitely dealing with um a lot of
0: different issues it kind of seems also like the state's hands are tied because is there a requirement that insurance is offered in the state i mean can insurers just just back out like like what we heard last summer and i know this is happening in other states too i think florida is another example so you need to work with them
3: right so i mean when it comes to auto um it is in Prop 103. Um, it is in California law that if you do offer auto insurance in California, if you happen to, if you are doing business here, that you must then offer auto insurance quotes to those who ask for it um, if they're considered a good California driver. But th- no such requirement exists for fire insurance or home insurance. Oh, um, so, so that's insurance- a big that's a big difference. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, you know, the, uh, that is a huge difference. And that's why um, home and fire insurance costs have gotten a lot more attention. Um, but yes, that is that is a huge difference. It is not part of uh, it is not part of California law, Um You know, it it remains to be seen if um, state legislators will take this up. Um, You know, I've, I've definitely heard, believe me, I've definitely heard from readers who have said, why isn't it that way? You know, why isn't it required? Yeah. And that probably involves
0: more reporting on your end. Levy, thank you so much for joining us again. Thanks a lot, Vicky. Appreciate it. Levi Sumagaisai is an economy reporter at CalMatters discussing California's fair plan, which is a last resort for fire insurance for property owners and the growing pains that it has been going through. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. We're back in just a moment.
2: Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Schloem. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear, from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome back to Insight on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. We're a month away from the California primary, a big milestone in a pivotal election year with races that ultimately shape the future of cities, counties, a state, country as a whole. But while participating in elections is critical for voters, politics can be a radioactive subject. We might stick with others who we believe align with our own views and beliefs. Perhaps we're quick to judge others who disagree with us, or we can just duck out altogether when it comes to political conversations. Political fatigue is real. It is charged. It does carry weight, and it can be really tough to sift through. Luckily, we have Hidden Brain to the rescue. The show and podcast allows us to explore our own minds and lives and perhaps reshape the way we see the world and others. I spoke with Hoth Shankar Vedantham about the launch of Hidden Brain's latest series, U.S. 2.0 about the psychology behind how we form our political beliefs. And spoiler, we should be engaging with each other more, not less. It's the approach and the mindset that's key. Shankar, thank you so much.
4: Welcome to Insight. Thank you so much for having me, Vicky. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So this series that you're debuting, U.S. 2.0, uh, I think is going to relate or resonate with a lot of people, especially in light of an election year. What conversations were you and the Hidden Brain team having leading up to this series launch?
4: In many ways, I think, Vicky, you know, as a team that's interested in psychological questions, we were looking out at the state of discourse, uh, political discourse in the United States, and we were coming to the conclusion that America needs psychotherapy. Uh, you know, we we have uh, a large family that, in many ways, is is sort of is somewhat dysfunctional in the way that we we speak to each other. Large numbers of people have come to distrust uh, the other side uh, to believe the other side is out to get them. Our conversations have become, uh, you know, very short and angry and spiteful and and hateful. And in some ways, the goal of this series is really to try and get under the hood of our political feelings, to ask how it is we come to our political opinions, and then to ask the deeper question, how we can talk more effectively across our political differences.
0: I mean, having political differences among family or loved ones, I mean, that has been around for generations. But Mm -hmm. why do you think it's become more difficult or a harder hill to climb when it comes to accepting someone's opposing view? Why has that become more difficult in recent years?
4: So I think there is a large uh, variety of reasons that's the case there are probably historical reasons political reasons there there are many there are many reasons I think uh, that you know partisanship has become more poisonous uh one of the interesting ideas uh is that we have increasingly come to see politics in the light of morality, that we sort of think about political issues as moral issues. Uh, and and it's not that political issues were not moral issues in the past or that they were never moral issues. There's always an element of right and wrong in the political choices that we make. But it is the case that the more we think about politics and political issues in moral terms, the harder it becomes to say, can we compromise, can we find a middle ground? Because if you believe X and I believe Y, you know maybe we can find a middle ground between X and Y, but if I believe X and I think X is the morally correct thing to do, how do I compromise on X? How do I give you 20%? Uh, How do I meet you halfway if I think that where I am is absolutely right and where you are is absolutely wrong? So I think in some ways, one of the challenges that we all confront, I think, in our political conversations is that we have two sides that have deeply felt beliefs that in some ways are moral beliefs. And some of the research suggests that the more deeply held our political beliefs become moral beliefs, the harder it is to find compromise of any kind.
0: Mm, I've noticed this. In response to that, you know, among some people is that maybe people will choose as a response is not to engage or even talk to someone about politics, Mm -hmm. especially if you know that your views differ from them. Is dodging the conversation the best approach?
4: It really is not. Uh, You know, one of the guests that we have in this upcoming series is um, a researcher who has studied geopolitical conflict uh, around the world. Uh, His name is Peter Coleman at Columbia University. And he told me the story about uh, a neighbor of his in his apartment building in Manhattan. Uh, He calls the neighbor David. And, you know, he didn't know David very well, but he would pass David now and then in the elevator. But then starting around 2015, 2016, uh, David started talking about politics and and mentioning his political views and and making snide comments. And Peter got very upset and very defensive and his response was exactly the response that many of us have, which was to shut down and to avoid meeting David altogether. Uh, And of course, this is completely understandable, but it's also completely counterproductive because of course, to the extent that we have any hope at all of building common ground and staying in conversation with anyone, the last thing that we should be doing is cutting off contact with people with whom we disagree.
0: And we can feel inundated when it comes to politics, especially with social media. I mean, there's really no stop button on scrolling on an app. And I think that can also lead to apathy. People just checking out of politics because it can feel draining, toxic or demoralizing. What consequence does this have?
4: I think you're exactly right. Uh, you know, the the ironic thing is that I think people who are very fervent partisans believe that the louder they shout, the more likely they are to get their way. In reality, I think what's happening is that you know, there's only a minority of Americans who are truly passionate about politics and who live, breathe, and talk politics and want, you know, politics is the most important thing in their lives. For the vast majority of Americans, politics is important, but it's not the most important thing in their lives. And when the last, this large majority hears this political discourse of people yelling and screaming at each other, they're not convinced by one side or convinced by the other side. They want to check out. They basically say, I want to close the newspaper. I want to turn off the cable television program because I just don't want to hear people screaming at one another. So ironically, the more passionately people talk about politics, the more alienating politics is for for large numbers of people. And from the point of view of democracy, you can see what a terrible idea this is.
0: Yeah. I mean, and you touch upon, you know, it can be tied to morality. It also can be tied to our identity in many cases. So a disagreement can feel like offensive or an attack. How do we break that reflex, especially when emotions are high?
4: That's right. You know, in recent years, uh, there are many, you know, political psychologists who have made the case that our loyalties to our political parties are affective in nature, by which they mean they're tied primarily to our sense of feeling. Uh, you know we, we tend to think we have a set of views and uh, ideological positions that we that we endorse, but much of the time, in some ways, we are responding to people based on our identities and our group affiliations and what the people around us believe. These are very powerful in shaping our own views, often without our own awareness and, and so very often in these conflicts, we are not fully aware ourselves of where our views are coming from or how our views were formed. One technique that I think might be effective in getting people to talk across their differences and and become more effective in convincing their opponents is something rather counterintuitive, which is not to shout louder or to throw facts at our opponents when that tends not to work very well, but to actually listen a little bit more. Um, and the model here is something that psychotherapists have mastered. You know, when you go and talk to a psychotherapist about a bad day that you had at the office, you know, maybe uh, you had a you had a spat with, with, with your boss or with your spouse, and you're really steamed about it, and you go and talk to a psychotherapist, you might spend the first 10 minutes ranting about how the world has treated you badly, but after 10 minutes, after you've gotten this off your chest, you tend to calm down, and then you start to talk a little bit more, and then maybe you start to ask yourself, well, maybe I played some role in this, and maybe I should actually think about what I could do, and maybe there's a way for me to make amends. And really, the role that the psychotherapist is playing here is not to argue with you, but almost to reflect back to you what it is that you're saying and to ask you to probe a little more deeply. If we were to do this more often with our political opponents, and I'm not suggesting this is easy to do it. In fact, it's very, very difficult to do. But to the extent that we are able to do that, when we're able to approach our opponents with curiosity, to ask them follow-up questions, to show that we genuinely are interested in how they come to believe what it is they believe, very often we will find that people will themselves come to their own doubts. They will come to their own hesitations. And perhaps just as importantly, people will then eventually stop and ask, well, what do you think? And very often, I think we fail to wait for people to actually ask us our opinions before we try to bombard them with it.
0: Yeah that is such a um I can that definitely resonates with me and some lessons I can take from from what you just said. If so for February um this series will be launching, you know, once a week, you have five episodes and the sixth one is a bonus one. What surprised you most uh, f- about listening and learning from from experts about this?
4: You know, I I think the hardest part in this series is something that I think many listeners will, will realize after they listen to the series, which is the gap between knowing what makes sense to do and actually doing it. Um, you know, I, I know in my own life that I'm often you know, not patient when I should be patient. I'm impatient when I should be patient, or I, I lose my temper when I should be calm, or I get triggered or I get upset by someone's political views, and then I wanna walk away from, from the conversation instead of staying in the conversation. And so there's a gap in some ways between knowing intellectually that something makes sense, that it's the rational course of action, that in fact this is more effective, and actually doing it. And, and I think what I take have taken away from the series as we were building, it, is the importance of trying to practice these techniques in small ways on a regular basis. Uh, so just like we train our muscles, uh, you go to the gym or you go for a walk or you go for a run, and what you're doing is you're training your physical body to adapt to stressors. So also in some ways we need to train our minds to adapt to stressors. And so before we take on you know, very big and controversial political issues, you know, to, to listen to people who might disagree with us only 10% and I basically sound them up, and say, why is it you've come to your points of view? And practice being a good listener with them and gradually ratchet up the degree of difficulty as we talk to people who disagree with us on more intense levels.
0: In the last 30 seconds or so that we have, do you have a favorite episode?
4: You know, <laughs> uh, that, that's like asking a parent, do you have a favorite child? And, and I will confess that I, I, don't, I don't have a p- favorite episode in the series. And I would also say that many of the, the, the stories in this series speak to one another. So I think there are themes that basically surface and move in and out of the different stories. One of them being in some ways that I think we fail to understand how much our identities and group affiliations shape our political identities.
0: Shankar, thank you so much.
4: Thank you so much, Vicky. It's been a pleasure to be on the show.
0: And that is Hidden Brain host Shankar Vedantham discussing the launch of their latest podcast series, U.S. 2.0, about the psychology behind how we form our political beliefs. That's it for Insight today. You can learn more about our guests at capradio.org insight. You can also subscribe to the Insight podcast. And if you want to speak with us, you can send us an email, insight at capradio.org. Thank you to producer Sarit Leshinsky and managing editor Arm Sarkissian. Our digital producer and audio engineer is Chris Feltz. Insights Technical Director is Mark Jones, and our show music is produced by Adrian Gilmore. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Have a great day.